We knew the products were going to be the cornerstone, but we wanted it to be bigger than that. We always talk about building a brand that is Canvas and that includes the communities. It includes artists. The marketing team that we have calls it a brand. I go lofty on them and call it a movement. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? This week, we're going to learn how one company is turning wind turbines into functional art. Our guest this week is Brian Donahue, managing partner at Canvas, and that's Canvas spelled with a U-S at the end of that. Since this is the first episode of 2024, I'm going to make a quick claim that Canvas is making one of the coolest products that hit my social media feed last year. Canvas is literally upcycling wind turbines and turning them into functional products like park benches, tables, planters, and this is all done out of pieces of retired wind turbines. Obviously, it's manufacturing happy hour, so you know that this isn't magic. So let's take a look at how these things get made. Here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, before we get into the manufacturing, we're going to hear the origin story of Canvas and why they decided to go the route of turning turbines into products that amplify public spaces. Second, Brian is going to discuss how these things get made, how the blades get deconstructed, all of that behind-the-scenes stuff. He's also going to share how they built a process around this and some of the challenges they've had to overcome to get there. While this episode is really about exploring cool products, products that quite frankly don't really come to mind right off the bat when you think about manufacturing, Brian has some great advice for manufacturing leaders overcoming their own production conundrums in this segment of the show. Finally, and I'll be honest, this was one of my favorite parts, we discussed the role that a manufacturer like Canvas plays in community. There's actually a whole lot more to these benches than meets the eye. Canvas partners with local artists to basically turn these into functional art, functional murals. Anyway, I don't want to give much more away than that, but I will say that this is a -a one-of-a-kind conversation that hasn't really been discussed on the show before. As always, if you want to learn more, if you want to connect with Canvas, if you want to figure out how to get a bench in your park, all of the above, go to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 166. And if you are enjoying this show, if you are loving Manufacturing Happy Hour, if you really like this particular episode, hey, please don't forget to take the time to leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that's on iTunes, whether that's on Spotify taking that time to leave that review, provide that rating, and that review doesn't need to be too long. It can be just a couple sentences. It really helps put the show on the map. Anyway, with all that said so far, it's time to get to know Canvas. Let's meet up with Brian Donahue. Brian, I I gotta be honest, when I saw canvas hit my Instagram feed, I knew on the spot that that we had to do an interview because 
what you're doing repurposing wind turbines is so cool. So let's let's say you're based in Ohio, you're in Avon, Ohio, not too far from Cleveland. Let's say we're hanging out, I don't know, at Great Lakes Brewing. It's the winter time. We're having Christmas ales. How do you describe what Canvas does? How do you tell that story in, in one minute as if you're having a drink with someone? It's a great question. So what we have done is taken the wind turbine blades and they're long, they're heavy, they're made out of fiberglass. So not a very recyclable material in terms of your traditional recycling methods. And we looked at it differently. So we've taken those products and cut them into fillets and turned them into products. And those products are benches and planters and tables for public spaces that people can interact with and enjoy. Yeah. And, and I want to get some background on this because we're going to talk about the art and the manufacturing behind it. But let's get some background on the life cycle of a wind turbine, because I, I don't know if I have this correct. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, f I think I heard like somewhere between like 5,000 and 8,000 blades get taken down each year. And they, they have a life cycle ultimately of like 10 to 15 years. Why is that? Give us a bit of the background on that. So historically, you're you're right. About five to eight thousand blades come down every year, and the reasons for that are what we call repowering or decommissioning. Um, a turbine maintained properly will really run anywhere on the low end, probably fifteen years to thirty years, depending on where it is, conditions, etc. Um, there's been a lot of government incentive in the last ten, fifteen years about promoting renewable energy. So there were financial incentives to take down turbines that had only been up 10 years, 12 years, um, not really at their full life cycle. But what they were doing was taking down a smaller, say, one megawatt turbine. And with the way the technology increased, they could replace that with a 2.5 or a three megawatt turbine. So you're occupying the same footprint and making two and a half to three times more power. With that, you need larger blades and larger equipment. So the old ones come down and you have metal components, you have fluids, oils, and hydraulics, and then the fiberglass blades, which everyone kind of looked at and hadn't thought about 30 years before when they put them up and decided they needed to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. And, and, and one thing that I'm curious about, first of all, I, I do think it's interesting that you're in this cross-section of incentives motivating the life cycle, but also motivating an upgrade to a more efficient wind turbine as well. It's not taking it yep. down prematurely per se, especially when you have a way of upcycling it like you have, but you're putting in new technology. You're, well, I should say you're putting in a new turbine that leveraging new technology is able to be more efficient. My question though is how did Canvas decide to focus on upcycling turbine blades as products for public spaces. I mean, as I understand it, there were other options out there. They could be used as sound barriers for highways, as an example. So give us a bit of the origin story. How did this become the area you focused on? Absolutely. Um, well, we were involved. A lot of us were involved in another company that was more of a broker. So they would recycle the metals, which has been done for a hundred years at least. And, and you take a large heavy metal object and take it to a scrapyard or a steel mill and they melt it down. The fluids, the same thing. There's 200 companies out there. What we really wanted to add value by doing was solving the problem. When they first started taking the blades down, 
they kind of just cut them up and sent them to the local landfill and thought really nothing of it. Um, but media got a hold of that narrative and, and environmentalists got a hold of that narrative. And they took a bit of a PR beating because you're green, you're renewable, and you're putting these blades in a landfill. They're not going anywhere for a long time, which is part of the value in the blade to us is that it's so durable and so strong. The other alternatives that were out there, everything that people looked at of how to deal with fiberglass blades and not send them to a landfill involved destroying the blade. So shredding it into pieces so that it could be used as fuel in a cement kiln and the ash could then be used as a component of the cement or using it as aggregate or filler in roads. But it all requires an intermediate step of taking a 140 to 175 foot blade and getting it into like two to three inch pieces. That's intensive work and it's really abusive on equipment. So Parker Kowalski, who, who really was the first founder of, of Canvas, he was working at this other other company, Rivercap, and his his goal that he was tasked with was finding a, di- a better alternative because we have partners in the renewable industry. We're there to help them, and this was a problem they had. Now, again, it's easy to handle the metal and fluids, but adding value is finding a solution for fiberglass. And Parker came to us one day and said, if you cut it this way, and you sit it on its side, it becomes a surface that we can use as a seat. So he immediately, I mean, we we thought it was just an incredible idea. So he started Canvas about three years ago. Um, he first got on board his college roommate um, who had a degree in architecture. So Seth was primarily responsible for all of the early designs and, and how we were going to make these products. And then Parker very wisely uh, brought his sister over, Kayla, and she runs strategic growth. So all of the infrastructure, all of the processes, not just in manufacturing, but also on the sales and marketing side. And then they asked me to join because I had experience in sales and market and go to market strategies and, and bring that on board. So that's really how we all got together. We have other individuals from that company. We have plenty of people that we've hired from the outside, but we just took something and looked at it differently and thought it's a lot easier to cut it with a rope saw in the fillets than grind it down into two to three inch pieces. I love that. The other, the other question I have, cause I'm a big fan of like local manufacturing and the regional manufacturing scenes. Why Ohio? Was it just cause you were all there? Or is there other aspects that make Ohio like a spot for this type of application? So it's interesting. The, the early reason was that that's where we are. So, so if we're going to set up shop, we, we should do it somewhere close by because we're setting up a manufacturing facility truly unlike any other in the world. Um, yes, you have walls and a roof and equipment, but no one's ever done this before. So we knew we were going to have to be somewhere close by that we could keep an eye on things and get it up and running. What everyone said was, okay, but the wind farms are in Texas and Oklahoma and Oregon and everywhere else. So you're far away. But there are a lot of projects that are coming up in the next couple of years that are in upstate New York and Pennsylvania and Indiana and Illinois. So it actually worked out really well. Um, We've had discussions about whether or not we open multiple locations across the country where we can manufacture and be closer to supply and demand. Or do we just continue to expand the Ohio location 
and bring the blades here to upcycle. So we haven't landed on that yet, but it actually was very fortunate that it worked out that way for the project roadmap. And we've, we can bring blades from Iowa, um, to Cleveland. So it, it really worked out that, that, yeah, it's where we were, but, uh, but there's a lot of supply and, and plenty of demand in, in our, in our neck of the woods as well. Well, I can say from personal experience, driving across uh, the cornfields of Illinois and Indiana quite a bit, especially in these last few years, there's no shortage of uh, wind turbines uh, along the interstate highways there as well. So we'll talk a bit more about community a bit later in this interview, but I want to ask you a bit more about the manufacturing side first. So I think your facility is in an old like cotton distribute, like a cotton distribution plant, like you had to create a roadmap for tooling, getting equipment to handle the size and scale of these blades. How do you create a roadmap like that for, let's say, a manufacturing process that no one's really done before? <laughs> uh, there's a couple big factors that go into it. Um, you shut off the rest of your life and commit to working about 70 to 90 hours a week to figure it out. Um, there's some alcohol involved for the late nights that get the creative juices flowing, <laughs> but really you sit down with a group of people that are committed to solving a problem that exists. And we have a lot of strong opinions. Um, we have a lot of tenacity. And so as you continue to bounce things around, as I mentioned, the double-edged sword of what we do is that no one's ever done it before. So from a competitive standpoint, that's great canvas manufactures products for public spaces out of wind turbine blades, but there's no playbook. There's no Googling you can do to what kind of equipment do we need to do this? So really the first hurdle, well, they ran in parallel. We didn't know how big a facility we needed. We didn't know where it should be. Um, and I'm glad we got one. It's about 20 minutes from our headquarters because early on, I mean, we were living in the production studio, the manufacturing facility. We call it a production studio, but that makes it sound small. But it's really, we were back and forth so much, but 110,000 square feet is perfect. And you're right, it was a box. And that was perfect for us. It was just a warehouse. They removed all the racking. So no pun intended at all, we had a, a blank canvas to work with when we started outfitting it. We probably designed the facility um, through computer modeling 10 to 15 times to figure out the process flow and, and how things would work properly. And then we have a great procurement team that for every piece of equipment we needed, they brought us 15 different options. And, and then we debated about which was best and which we needed to go through to, uh, to get this up and running. So, okay, so I'm hearing great procurement team. I'm hearing the manufacturing happy hour approved activity of grabbing a beer and ideating. I'm also <laughs> hearing uh, you had the right facility for it. Just like you said, a blank canvas, just a square distribution center. So if you were to provide advice to the manufacturing leaders that are listening to this episode that are maybe having to embark on their own blank canvas type project, what advice or tips would you give them? There's a couple. Um, number one is, is be prepared to have more tenacity than you ever thought in your life. And, and if you're going to do it, you've got to go all the way and stick in it. But beyond that, also realize nothing great is ever built alone. No great company came out of nowhere all by themselves. 
And early on, we leveraged a number of partners um, as we were setting up our facility because the big equipment and everything is is not easy to find, but you know you need a rope saw that can cut the fiberglass blades. So they make them that cut concrete. They make them that, that cut huge pieces of wood. What did we need? We ended up with a saw from Italy that cuts marble and granite to make people's countertops and cuts slabs. So we understood the larger equipment to a great extent. You're cutting fiberglass. You need a lot of dust collection. But what we also did early on, because that's really the core of the business, the, the big equipment and the layout, you've got to get right. You also need bolts and sandpaper and dust masks and all that stuff. And one thing we did early on is, like I said, we found the right partners. So for, for all of the needs we had, and it was an advantage being a new business, we partnered with a company called Granger. And, and I'm sure all of your listeners know who they are. They, they have almost everything you could ever need in a manufacturing facility. But working with a partner like them, they could walk through and see what we needed on the small side, right? All, all the sundries and, and the nuts and bolts and allow us to keep our focus on the big vision and on the core of our business, which meant getting a manufacturing facility. But the biggest piece of advice is, is find the people that want to do it with you together. Granger was one of them. We've got some other great partners we've worked with, but really leverage people because especially when you're doing something new, one of the things you find, and, and I've traveled to a lot of manufacturing facilities, as I'm sure you have, they get going and then a year or two in, they realize they want to make everything efficient. And it's already kind of the, 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 the horse is out of the barn, right? And, and you're in production. So it's hard to stop and, and kind of regain your footing. We, we had the luxury of being able to do that right from the get go. And, and so that's what I would recommend is, is no, you won't do it alone and, and bring in the right partners to work with. We'll be back in a moment, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. Gray Solutions isn't just a systems integrator. They're a team of intellectual rebels on a mission to revolutionize smart manufacturing through innovation. Now, I've worked with a lot of systems integrators before, and I can say that the crew at Gray Solutions is the first group that comes to mind when I'm looking for a team with the creativity to solve unique problems in the automation world. While plenty of companies have the tech, Gray Solutions has the talent. Their 275 solutioneers and counting are in the trenches with their customers every day, collaborating and overcoming the challenges of modern manufacturing. At Gray Solutions, they let curiosity lead their solutioneers to develop better outcomes for the manufacturers they serve. And if you want to hear how they do that, make sure to check out episode 158 of Manufacturing Happy Hour for a full interview with their founder and CEO, Walker Maddox. Walker has stories that showcase his team's true expertise in digital transformation, OT cybersecurity, robotics, vision, process packaging, turnkey solutions, you name it. You'll hear how Walker has created a culture where solutioneers are empowered to create smarter solutions and blaze new trails in automation. To listen, go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 158 or head to graysolutions.com to connect with a solutioneer today. When curiosity leads, success follows. And now, back to today's episode. So I've got another like two-part question here. I'm going to ask you part one first, and then we'll we'll get your advice after that. But you know, as I understand it, every blade, like every fillet you make, is unique. There's no 
two, they're like snowflakes. Every part is different from one another. How do you Mm -hmm. create standards around that when everything you're doing is different? It's a great question. Um, It's a hybrid model. And the way we looked at it is you have a company like Ford and I heard a number once, I'll probably mess it up, but I mean, they're, they're turning out like eight cars per minute in their facilities because they've got it so down and the automation is incredible. Then you have an Aston Martin where people are stitching the leather by hand and assembling an automobile, a beautiful automobile by hand. We had to combine the two because really the most automation we can put into it because they are all different is using that rope saw to make the fillets that are going to become products. Once that's done, they are all little snowflakes. Even when two pieces that were cut right next to each other still have a different shape. So then it goes really into our craftsmen's hands. And we hired people deliberately that were craftsmen, not that had worked on fiberglass before, not that had poured rubber, which we use for our benches, but people that knew how to build things, houses, decks, cabinets, some of our guys laid concrete. Um, so they work with their hands because the blades get banged up in the air. They get dragged across the ground when they're down. So they have scars. So we have guys that smooth it out. They use a lot of Bondo. It's almost like they're working in an auto body shop and they're repairing the outside of that blade. You have a cut edge that would not be very comfortable to sit on because of the wood and glass splinters that you're going to end up with. And they fill that in with compounds and make it a smooth edge. So really once it's cut, that's the Ford side where we just chop all the fillets and then it goes over to the handcrafted side. And these guys are excellent at what they do. They've learned it very quickly. Um, and, and they really enjoy what they're doing and being a part of it. I like that tip around hiring craftspeople, folks that have worked mm-hmm. with their hands. Obviously, they probably haven't been working on, you know, fillets of wind turbines before, (laughs) but they've got the foundational experience. So that's one lesson I took from there. I told you this was a two part question. So do you have advice for the manufacturing leaders that want to create their own standards on very custom type of product that they're making? Yeah, definitely hire the right people. And at times and and I believe this is the way to go, it's going to cost a little more. You're going to pay a little above market. But when you get the right people, we've also benefited tremendously from people we hire bringing in referrals and people they had worked with in another trade. And they say, this guy is really meticulous. He knows what he's doing or, or this girl. So bringing in the right people sets the foundation. Um, finding good leaders, which like any hiring process, it's, it's like speed dating, right? You, you meet for an hour, maybe you have a second interview for an hour, and then you're expected to get married and it, it's going to be bliss. But you really need to bet your leaders out because that's who's going to keep that operation running once we come back and focus on sales and marketing when it's set up. So leadership's critical. And the other thing is, especially with craftspeople, they're very good at what they do. They're typically the right ones are perfectionists and they have a lot of ideas. And so not in a disrespectful way, but also as a company, know when to shut the suggestion box, because otherwise you're just going to have 10 different ideas for every problem and really never get anywhere. So everyone has to put their thick skin on and say, all right, I don't know if this is the best solution, but out of the 10 that we went through, this is it and move forward, make a decision and, and move on. Otherwise, you'll just keep going in circles trying to figure out who has the best idea. 
So tips for hiring and working with craftspeople, tips for making sure you get your leaders in place. I have a, I told you this was a leadership podcast disguised as a manufacturing podcast. At least I think I did. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you one more in this on this topic before we change gears a little bit. What is the number one leadership trait you look for when you're interviewing folks? Or alternatively, maybe you can answer this way. What's a question that you ask in those interviews to determine what type of leader someone is? There's a lot of different ways to get at the answer. I, I think one of the key traits of a leader is sort of putting on noise canceling and, and not listening to every little thing. You've got to be strong in your conviction. And and there really are. And and I I have never worked in one, but I there may be scenarios where it works. And some leaders believe they're there to be a shoulder to cry on and, and tell everybody that everything's going to be okay when really people will find reasons to, to go to their leader with a problem and hope the leader solves it. You want a leader that is not going to abandon their people by any stretch, but also turn it back and say, all right, what do you think we should do? And if that person's empty of ideas, then they're just looking to you, but you want a leader that's going to have the backbone to say, you know what, this is tough. This is a startup. This is something no one ever has done in the world before. And yeah, I'm sorry that didn't work out. And I'm, I'm sorry, we're not a week ahead instead of a week behind, but they're still going to be able to rally their troops. It's, it's easy to rally their troops in a good time. It's hard to do it when you're, when you're setting things up and, and getting things going. So you need that strong leadership that's going to drive people and not really give them a crutch, but actually make them better as they move on. I appreciate you taking us through, let's say the, the people side of the manufacturing world yeah. as, as we talk through this. And then some of the traditional topics we talk about on manufacturing happy hour, the rest of the interview is going to be a little different. And I'm just going to dive into this question because I don't think I've ever asked this question on the show before your turbines, the seats, the the stuff you create, it's an art project as well. We've been talking about getting the form and the function of the seats and the benches and all that, right? But you partner with artists to really make these unique as well. So how do you go about partnering with local artists when you do all this? <laughs> Another team of great people. Um, early on, you know, saying we make products or we make furniture, it, it's a little misleading. Um, our brand team early on with Parker and Seth called it functional art. And that was even before we really brought in the full artist piece, because what you're referring to is we have an option for our products to have a finish called primed and ready where they don't have a finished coat of paint on them. What they have is white primer. And people can come to our design studio in Avon, Ohio. It's part of our manufacturing facility and they can paint those. And we don't tell them what to paint. They submit a design and I, we haven't had it happen yet. I'd be surprised where we had a rejected design, but they kind of put this vision out there. We approve it and they come in or we can ship products out right now. We have 10 products going out to Austin, Texas, and they're going to have local artists paint them there. But either way, it's been really unique. So one of the things we did early on in our facility was create what we call a gallery. And it's 10,000 of the 110,000 square feet because we have executives coming in from turbine manufacturers, from blade manufacturers, from the wind industry, and from our partners like, like Granger and companies like Cintas and everybody else. They want to come in and understand, I've never heard of a bench made out of a wind turbine blade. 
So we created a gallery with cityscapes and artificial turf and things so they could see what these would look like in the wild. And we created some blade walls and they looked really boring. We were using them just for delineation. So we used the tips of the blades to make a wall. And a local artist came in and painted that as a mural. We had two other huge walls where we brought artists in. And then those artists came back and painted products. And art communities in cities, you know, Cleveland's a a smaller big city, I, I guess. You know, we're not a New York or a Chicago, but there are thriving art communities and these people talk. So we had an individual come in and paint a wall. And it turns out his partner has been, she was Cleveland artist of the year, like three years in a row. So they came back together and they each painted a separate piece, which are now at our great Lakes science center in downtown Cleveland. And they tell their friends and they put it on Instagram. And what's really funny is it's great for us, right? Because that artist is exposing canvas and every artist wants to paint something. And, and I know even in our small town where I live, artists are always badgering city hall to paint. Well, you run out of walls, you run out of space. We give you all that surface area to paint. So they're promoting our brand, but at the same time, our team then goes ahead and promotes that artist. We've had cities in Indiana say, I saw the work of that Cleveland artist. Can you have them paint our products? And so it really becomes this full circle thing where it feeds each other. And we do have a whole team that works with the part, we call it par primed and ready that works with that um, element to bring the artists in. And I have personally zero artistic talent. I'm, I'm like stick figure is about where I end. So watching them take one of our pieces and turn it into something that's just incredible is so satisfying. And then watching those go out to the community and the people receive them, it's just mind blowing when it gets there. The next round of our interviews coming up right after a word from our sponsor. If you're a maintenance leader, then you definitely need to learn about Traction. Traction is an all-in-one hardware software solution that integrates condition monitoring, IoT sensors, and an asset management software. More importantly, they make your maintenance department more streamlined, reliable, and profitable. So, if you work in maintenance or lead a team of maintenance folks, then don't miss episode 127 featuring their founder, Igor Marinelli. There you'll hear the full story behind Traction, and you'll hear why Igor truly believes that maintenance leaders are the industrial champions that are bringing the future of machine monitoring to life. He shares why frontline teams are at the center of industrial innovations and how to move past proof-of-concept projects and actually implement new ideas. Tune in by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 127 or wherever you get your podcasts. Traction, leave breakdowns and production delays behind and invest in real predictive maintenance. Learn more at traction.com. And now back to today's episode. Well, well, let's talk about the community a little bit, because when I've done my research on Canvas, it says your mission is building a collaborative brand that inspires community. So we'll start off with a general question to to go down this path. What role does manufacturing play in creating community? It's a great question. We always believed when we stumbled on this idea, or I shouldn't say stumbled, but when we came up with it, we knew the products were going to be the cornerstone of it. And so, but we wanted it to be bigger than that. 
And we always talk about building a brand around Canvas and building a brand that is Canvas. And that includes the communities. It includes artists. It includes, um, and I'll talk about this, our, our legacy benches and then our sponsor a space where people give back to communities. Um, they, the, the marketing team that we have calls it a brand. I, I go lofty on them and call it a movement. Um, but either way, the products are the foundation of that because what we say, when we build a brand, you take our products and that leads to collaborations. It leads to collaborations with families on our legacy benches and national brands on our sponsor of space. It leads to collaborations with companies that I mentioned, like Granger. It leads to all these different fun things that we get to do with other partners. And then that creates experiences. So when our products land in a community and they're delivered, we try and reach out immediately. But typically that community is calling us first saying, I can't believe how big they are, how well they're made and how cool they are. I can't wait to get them out in the park. And then take Austin, for example, they're going to have multiple events where people come and watch these artists, turn them into, they think it's cool already when it's white. And then they're going to watch artists make it part of Austin. So that's really, so when you go back to the first piece of that, the products and the manufacturing, we can't have products go out that in a year are falling apart or the paint's chipping off of them, or they're just cheap and, and not what they're supposed to be. So that's where our heavy, heavy influence was on manufacturing. We knew if we had good products, then we could get them to market and we could get the communities and the collaborators to rally around them. But we over-engineered everything. If we could do it with composite, we did it with aluminum to make it stronger. If one coat of paint would work, we put two on it to make sure it's not going to chip and scratch away. We use paint that they paint roller coasters with and train cars so that they stand the test of time and, and they'll be out there. And cities do love, communities do love the fact that if it gets graffitied on, the paint we use, you can power wash the graffiti right off. So you're not going to lose the essence of that product, which was so important to us. So we could definitely get away with less, but it's really, I think, a bad move in manufacturing to, to, to cut those corners and try to get away with something. Just make a better product and sell more of it to make that money. Yeah. So you're really, you're manufacturing the foundation that allows the art to thrive and stick around and not 100%. get washed off. And at the same time, the art is really kind of what starts to tie that bench that furniture, whatever you want to call it, starts to tie it to the park, mm -hmm. the community. So I'm going to jump, I, I, I got to jump ahead here because I was going to ask this at the very end, but I'm sure someone is listening to this and thinking it's like, how do I get one of these benches in my park? Right. So we, we have to talk about this, like, cause you do a lot of other cool stuff. It's not just building the bench. You've got canvas world where you have stories associated with these benches. I'm not going to go too far yet, but how do people go about getting these in their parks, in their communities, et cetera? Absolutely. So we have an entire business development team that reaches out to communities all over the U S to let them know what they're, what we're doing and let them know about our products. Now communities can absolutely say, well, that sounds great. We love the products and we're going to purchase them ourselves and, and put them in this park. And, and we've had transactions just like that. But a lot of communities 
don't have room for that in their budget and, and they have to wait till they can get it approved. And, and there's all the red tape that goes along with it. And that's really where it comes down to what we call, and I mentioned it, our legacy benches and then sponsor a space. So on the legacy bench side, you've seen them in any community, a, a bench with a little plaque or it's carved in that it's in memory of grandma Helen. And they're really nice. They allow family to honor a loved one that's, that's no longer with us. We call it a legacy bench because we want it to be for a family to tell a story that may involve someone no longer with us, but also honoring someone who's still a part of the community. We've had communities, um, one in California in particular, that used the bench and put it outside their VFW. And they can honor the hero of the month, a veteran in the community that did a great job and, and, and a great service to our country. So the legacy benches, we work with communities to amplify that on their social media. So basically, the individual or the family actually buys that product from the community, who then in turn buys it from Canvas. On the sponsor of space side, we work with national brands and large, large companies, local businesses, and then foundations who want to give back to communities. Most corporate citizens, whether they be a small local car dealership or a company with a manufacturing facility in that town, they're good stewards of the community. They like to be a part of the community and to give back and their employees live there and their customers live there. So what we do is we talk with those organizations and the community will say, we want to redo this park and we'd love these 12 products. We go out and find the sponsor that will sponsor all 12 or sponsor three of them and, and put the entire package together for the city. And that, that comes with an impact, whether it be on the family side with the legacy bench or the sponsor of space, all of our products have a plaque on them, a four by six aluminum plaque with a QR code. And it tells you who is responsible for that bench being there. And the QR code leads to a story. And if it's a family, it's the story of their family and the story they want to tell. A brand will use it almost as a marketing tool, as a small billboard that someone's actually sitting on. They're not driving by it at 70 miles an hour. They're not hearing the commercial come on the radio and switch it to a different station. That person's sitting there having a, glass, uh, a, a cup of coffee and scanning that QR code and learning more about the company that sponsored that bench in that space. Yeah, and I think it's very cool how you've combined manufacturing, art, social media, and storytelling all into everything you're doing. Because for the folks out there, I mentioned it when I was asking the question, I believe you have a site called Canvas World that's kind of a collection of all the stories where you can see that. And like you said, I, I think I was playing around with it or something like that or had heard that the QR code could lead to the city's event page or something like that. Like this That's is right. you you like it's it's no longer, let's say, a static bench that is like a memorial to someone, which is great. But you open up the opportunity to do more than that by creating not just a product, not just art, but more of a, a storytelling platform in a lot of ways, which I find very cool. Absolutely. And, and canvasworld.com is exactly where you can see all these. And what you'll see is a large interactive map and it will have three different color pins, if you will, on it. A red pin means that a community has, a, has requested a product in that space 
and it hasn't been fulfilled yet by anyone. So that's where we can show sponsors potential areas where their products can go. You know, a local a local restaurant doesn't necessarily want a bench in front of their restaurant talking about the restaurant. They want it in a park that's going to bring people to their restaurant. A national brand can't put a billboard in the areas where our products can go. So everybody gets to benefit. But so those red dots, they represent where our legacy benches and the, the products can go that are going to be sponsored. A blue dot means that it's been committed and has been ordered and it's in production, but it's not in place yet. And then finally, when it gets there, the dot turns black. And that's what we call an installation. And it means that product's there. And it can be a legacy bench put there by a family or a sponsored piece. And when you click on that, it's exactly as you say, you see the QR code message just as if you were sitting on that bench scanning it. And you could be 2,000 miles away and still see it. So you can see all the content that's behind there and you can see the story of that family or in my case, my family spread out all over the country. So I could put a bench in my parents' hometown that my sister can update the content from a thousand miles away. My brother from another thousand miles away can add in the stories that they want to be a part of that. And then anybody else can see it when they look at Canvas World, you see all of our products, whether they're there yet or not it gives everyone the opportunity to see how far and wide this art can go and, and this functional art can be out there because memorial benches are awesome, but a typical bench will last six to 10 years. And then that's kind of gone. Our products are going to be out there on the light side, really from about 20 to 30 years. So that story, whether it be your own story or a brand story that they change over time, it lives on for that long. And, and they get to take advantage of telling that story for that long. Yeah, this has been a, a great lesson in upcycling, particularly when you've got something that's not terribly easy to recycle by traditional means. You found a great way to, to repurpose that. And I think for our audience, that's very used to hearing us talk about let's say traditional manufacturing applications on this show. I hope this has been a way to, to maybe look at manufacturing differently a little bit today and see where it intersects with art and community. I have to ask you, I think a fun way to end this interview, we, we, we've, we've just been talking about canvas world, how you can share stories, how it can be an advertisement, whatever it is. Is there a cool story that sticks out? That like if you were to tell one of the stories behind the benches that you've built, is there a one that is front of mind that would would be cool to hear for the audience? There are so many and and there are a couple where where uh, a product that's going to a school, they'll buy one of our par products and then have all the students put their hands in paint and put it there. So five years, 10 years, when those kids are graduating from high school that story can be updated as all of them progress from, let's say they did it in first grade all the way through high school. There've been a couple of those. I, I think the most moving, and, and I alluded to it before, um, you know, we're currently working with the VA hospital to get products on their campuses, but Tehachapi, California is the city that uses that bench and they're using it to highlight um, uh, I think he was a Marine that never came back from Vietnam, but was a big part of that community. His brother was at the ribbon cutting ceremony and it was really moving to see that story behind it and allow that family to honor, honor, you know, their, their veteran who was in their family. That's probably 
that's the one that sticks out to me the most. Um, you know, it's just, there's so many different ways to do it. People have links to their favorite songs or their wedding songs. We've had people that have links to grandma's chocolate chip cookie recipe. It's all there for them. Our team helps them put it together, but really within the bounds of, of any sort of decency, they can put whatever they want in there. It's their real estate to tell the story that they want to tell. So it's been really, really fun to see the different versions and, and different ideas that people have on how to use that. Well, I've loved hearing just the sampling of stories today. I loved hearing the story behind Canvas, and I'm excited for all the stories yet to come as your business continues to grow. Last question, is there anything you wish I would have asked or any final words of advice or call to action for the audience before we wrap up today? Nothing I wish you would have asked, um, but I, I, I will say one thing that, that I was thinking as we were talking about the manufacturing and the people, um, you know, people are, are really the, the beyond our products don't happen without our people and, and manufacturing kind of happens in two ways, right? There there's heavy automation where people operate equipment to make a product. And, and then there's uh, manufacturing like ours where you really, the person is sort of the equipment in that scenario, manufacturing the product. Either way, having the right people is, is really going to get you so much further faster than, just trying to fill slots on a manufacturing floor. We're very fortunate to do something that no one's ever done before. And I've, I, I, as I've mentioned, I've been around a lot of manufacturing. I think every one of our people in our manufacturing facility, there's 25 to 30 have on a weekend brought their wives or significant others or their parents. I just had my parents in town and showed it to them for the first time. You don't see that in a lot of manufacturing where they want to go there on the weekend and show their family what they do. So it's really rewarding to be a part of something like that and then have them telling their friends about it and, and really taking a huge amount of pride in what they're doing and being part of a really cool story. Yeah, no, it's uh, like I said at the start of the interview, I saw it on Instagram. I saw the vibe of the facility, the stuff you were creating. I'm like, this is perfect for manufacturing happy hour. So I would have been excited to go in on the weekend as well. I'll say that. Brian, <laughs> I just want to thank you for taking the time to jump on the show. And I'm looking forward to, to sharing the canvas story with the manufacturing happy hour audience. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. You know, it seems to be happening on the show lately. I was chatting with Brian after we stopped recording, and I asked him a question that, you know, quite frankly, I, I didn't think to ask during the interview. I said, hey, why do you spell canvas the way you do with a U.S. at the end rather than an A.S.? And he told me that the us is the community. It's the family. It's the business, the artists, the partners. You know, we talked a lot about partnerships in there. We talked a lot about the role of manufacturing in community. So totally makes sense. It was cool to get a little more background on that. One other thing I'll say is I think it's very cool that they're hiring craftspeople the way they are. Obviously, their unique product, their unique process facilitates that. But I hope we start seeing more of that in the manufacturing world. Anyway, if you want to learn more, if you want links to Canvas, Canvas World, and if you want to follow them on Instagram, I would highly recommend doing that. That's how I first learned about them. Go to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 166. You can get links to all of that stuff over there. And as we wrap up, I do want to thank our sponsors this week, 
Gray Solutions and Traction. Thank you for everything you have done for the show. Then also, if you did enjoy this episode, don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, couple final announcements on my end, more personal announcements, since this is the start of 2024. I gotta tell you, my calendar for this year is already packing up. Just in the first couple months, going to San Francisco and throwing an event the week of January 8th, then it's right off to the A3 Business Forum in Orlando, Florida to connect with my automation community at the Association for Advancing Automation's kickoff event for the year. And then January 31st, a couple weeks later, it's down to the Industrial Marketing Summit in Austin, Texas. Then immediately after that, over to the West Coast to Anaheim for ATX West. Then finally, one last stop after that, I'll be at the Missouri Association for Manufacturers event in Branson at the end of February, or I should say middle of February. But I bring this up because needless to say, there's going to be a manufacturing happy hour event taking place in all of these areas associated with all these events, podcast interviews, panel discussions. So with that, I have two opportunities I wanted to throw out to you. If you need someone to cover your manufacturing event and create a podcast episode around it, please let me know. I do this at a handful of events throughout the year. Regular listeners, I know you're familiar with these episodes. You've heard those compilations from those events. And while March through June is already starting to stack up and get booked, I still have a little bit of availability during those months. The other thing I want to put myself out there for is keynote talks. I do this on occasion. I'm doing more of these now. You can hire me for that as well. I've done my 10 lessons from 100 interviews with manufacturing leaders. Soon I need to update that to 200 interviews. And also I'm sharing new approaches to storytelling to break through the noise. That's more of a marketing and social media and storytelling style keynote, but a couple different flavors depending on what you're looking for and Quite frankly, if you book me for your event, I can do a podcast, I can lead a panel discussion, I can do a keynote, and I can do a branded event associated with it. It comes as a whole package. So if you're interested, send me an email at info at manufacturinghappyhour.com with the subject line events so I know what it's about, and I'd love to continue the conversation from there. Anyway, that was the last plug for this episode. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour, powered by the Industrial Network.